With me in the SCANA studio today are Professor Bobby Doddleson of the University of South Carolina and Michael Allen with the National Park Service. And we're going to be talking about an event in South Carolina that took place in 1966, 50 years ago, the March to the Ballot Box, when Martin Luther King Jr. addressed a large crowd in Kingstree, South Carolina. Bobby, let's back up a little bit from 1966 and talk about South Carolina and the American South, 1960. In South Carolina, we've already gone through things like the fight for the primary, the Democratic primary. That was 1948. You've got the school board decision in 1954, the Supreme Court decision, which started here with Briggs versus Elliott. But it's still hard for persons of color to register in South Carolina. You want to give us a little bit of that background? Yeah, I think that with the uh, Elmore v. Rice decision and also Briggs v. Elliott, there was this assumption that these were these were major legal milestones that would turn around the racial divide in in South Carolina and the nation. And but those people in the local communities realized that the milestones did not translate into immediate change. And so there was constant struggle between the late 1940s with John Henry McRae and the Progressive Democratic Party uh, and other organizations such as the NAACP working to create more opportunities for voting and trying to circumvent the impediments that were in place uh, with regards to voting. And one of those impediments was still the literacy test and trying to figure out how do you educate African-Americans, train African-Americans to circumvent something that was intentionally put in place to weaken black voting power and black voting opportunity. And so Septima Clark, for example, based in Charleston, is actively involved in the citizenship schools. And those programs were devised to train African-Americans to improve their literacy, their reading and writing, with a major goal of providing them the tools they could have to then register and to exercise their right to vote. And the literacy test was in place in most southern states. I registered to vote in 1965. And in Alabama in 1965, you had to have a registered voter take you to the registrar's office. My grandmother took me because my father was working. By this time, the Voting Rights Act has been passed. And there still was, quote, a test, but there were two stacks of tests for the literacy test. Mm -hmm. And the registrar could not decide who got which one. And I got the test that had obviously been made uh, intended for African Americans. It was almost a full page about bankruptcy law in Alabama, and I was supposed to explain that. It was in, it was in the Constitution. There were federal marshals standing behind her back. But grandmother's reaction was interesting. First of all, she was infuriated that she had to go down and that I had to be identified, that my saying who I was and producing my driver's license wasn't right. sufficient. Sounds familiar. And then she thought, what is this stupid test? Of course, she had registered vote soon after the women got the right to vote. But that that brought home to me as a young college student what the Jim Crow laws in terms of voter registration were all about. And see, the, those persons who gathered in Kingstree on Mother's Day of 1966, they knew that. They knew what voting could mean and would mean in their lives and in their communities. They knew that they could have a, an opportunity or a voice in selecting who will represent them uh, in the United States Congress, in the local levels. But so did white leaders. They too knew what might happen or what could happen if black people were given the right to vote. And so therefore, as African Americans are throughout much of the 20th century struggling to gain the right to vote, you also see the opposition very intentionally and very creatively putting in place impediments to thwart that opportunity. Well, you've got the literacy test, then you also have accounts of people being in line to register to vote in South Carolina. And there was one line by this time. Right. But when a black person got to the counter, pulled down the shade and said, gone to lunch mm-hmm. or what have you. Right. I mean, these are, things, these are things that are all quite subjective. So, yeah. So the registrars would conveniently be absent or not available or the books are closed during a given window of time when they are fully aware that the NACP or some other organization is, in, is planning to come down with, to register a block of people to vote. The also, other thing that's uh, important for listeners t- to remember 
is that you know, in addition to the very obvious laws in place, there was also a culture in place, a culture that tried to intimidate uh, black people uh, to strike up a level of fear. And so the, 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 the culture of intimidation, the culture of violence that is quite obvious in many headline stories around the Deep South, that is in the minds of people too. And so you, you mentioned in your own recollections about federal marshals being present. And that is why on the local levels, people demanded that the federal government intervene because there was the assumption that only with the presence of an outside uh, monitoring force could this actually even happen or work. Um, the other thing is, even if you were a college-educated person who did well on the, the, the literacy test, these things are all subjectively evaluated. Those in the local courthouses could easily dismiss a black person with a PhD on the grounds that, no, you did not interpret this as we thought you should. Okay, and we're, you know, 1966, but to get there, you talked about the intimidation and uh, you had mentioned earlier Elmore v. Rice and the Briggs case. What happened to those people who brought those lawsuits? Well, I think if you look at George Elmore, I mean, here was a person who was very active in the NAACP, very active in the Progressive Democratic Party, who, when the question was asked, who might be willing to go and challenge the restrictive clauses in place that made the Democratic Party of South Carolina an all-white private club, George Elmore, who was a very fair-skinned African-American from Holly Hill, South Carolina, uh, who many remember having a white father, uh, George Elmore was able to manipulate the system, go forward, sign his name, and that name now being on the books meant that he could vote. And so when he tries to vote and they discover that George Elmore is a Negro who lives on Tree Street, which is clearly in a black neighborhood, then all of a sudden, no, you can't vote. There, there's a, now a, all the reasons are in place why this is clearly an oversight. And so George Elmore very intentionally uses that, as does the NACP and the Progressive Democratic Party, to challenge and ultimately successfully the white Democratic Party uh, through uh, federal rulings rendered by Jay Wadey's Waring from Charleston, who faced his own uh, reprisals on multiple occasions for trying to move South Carolina in the 20th century. George Elmore, upon the decision of Elmore v. Rice, uh, faces reprisals. Uh, he, is, he loses uh, his home. Uh, his business is, is ultimately destroyed. Uh, he has a series of health battles and, and ultimately passes away a very poor man, uh, still a very proud man. Uh, and, you know, regrettably, uh, until very recently, his contributions and those of others from that time period uh, have been largely overlooked uh, in, in, in South Carolina. In the Briggs case, uh, many of the petitioners of the case that sought initially the equalization of schools and then ultimately this desegregation of schools, uh, many of them faced their own reprisals. Uh, some were chased out of Clarendon County. Mr. Briggs himself lost uh, his job. Uh, his wife lost jobs. Uh, teachers who were associated with petitioners lost their jobs. Reverend J.A. Delane, uh, an AME minister uh, who was one of the primary organizers uh, of the movement in Clarendon County. His home uh, is burned down. Uh, when he moves to Lake City, his church is burned down. Uh, his home is, is riddled with bullets uh, by some vigilantes who come down his street. Uh, but J.A. Delane, who was a practitioner of nonviolence on that night, allegedly shot back and soon thereafter left uh, South Carolina and remained in exile for the rest of his life, living in New York and then ultimately uh, in Charlotte. So the case of Delane, um, the case of Elmore are just two very notable examples of black people who understood that there would be a real cost of trying to affirm one's citizenship in South Carolina. Okay. And the pressure, particularly economic pressure, was often referred to as the squeeze. Was squeeze, right. And so even in a place like Orangeburg, and what is interesting about that part of the state is that here you have some very active civil rights work happening in a space and in a region where you have a very active white citizens council in place. 
And so in a, in, a, in a community like Orangeburg, for example, where the NACP and college students uh, engage in boycotts in years before the boycott movement is, is a, a kind of consistent strategy, what occurs in, in Orangeburg is the squeeze is where people are denied credit, uh, people's property are acquired, people's jobs uh, are threatened, and that, those stories made national news. Uh, Jet Magazine, for example, uh, in 1955-56, tried to um, describe how black people were facing these intimidations. Uh, Majeska Monteith Simpkins, who lived in Columbia, but who was a powerhouse in the NAACP, uh, spread the word about what was happening, uh, and she and others initiated a campaign to get relief. And so truckloads of materials, clothing, food, and a significant amount of money uh, was sent to South Carolina from around the country to help those African Americans who dared to, to go public uh, in their criticism of the status quo. Is not that the origin of the Victory Savings Bank? Well, the Victory Savings Bank uh, has an earlier history. Uh, it, it really emerges uh, during the World War I period with Majeska Monteith Simpkins' family being actively involved. But during the, throughout the 1950s, the Victory Savings Bank was the, um, the repository where much of the funding uh, came and was then dispensed. Um, and on a number of occasions, if you look at the Victory Savings Bank's records, which are um, in the archives of the South Carolina Library, you see transactions uh, from NACPs in Cleveland, Ohio, or in New York, coming in, sending small amounts of money that ultimately uh, are in the thousands uh, to help poor people in these areas. Uh, and the Victory Savings Bank is just one of those institutions that we typically overlook as we talk about all the multiple components of civil rights in the state. Bobby, you mentioned the records of the Victory Savings Bank in, in the Carolinian Library. That was The Victory Savings Bank was a very important institution within the African-American community, not, not just in Columbia, but for the state. Well, yeah, it was. Um, and even in the case of the Briggs v. Elliott decision, uh, when the NACP sought uh, support uh, around the country for the case itself and then for the relief of those who were petitioners, the Victory Savings Bank was very important in, in galvanizing support and in distributing the money uh, to those in Clarendon County and other parts of South Carolina. Well, the early 60s were momentous in terms of the civil rights movement in South Carolina. Uh, you have 1963 with the desegregation of, of Clemson and the University of South Carolina and the trickle of desegregation in a, in a couple of school districts. Mm -hmm. But the real key issue here is getting the right to vote. And you mentioned the leadership schools, which Septima Clark was doing in the, in the Low Country. Uh, a lot of these folks trained at the Highlander School in Mott Eagle, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. But still, it was going to take some outside pressure, in this case the federal government, to make registering to vote a reality. So in 1964, we get the Civil Rights Act. That still doesn't give folks what they need. Yeah. Also, you know, the early 60s, and I think this is important to underscore for South Carolina, as we talk about what leads up to Williamsburg, you know, in the early 60s, uh, there were students all around South Carolina and around the, around the country addressing issues of discrimination and inequality. And so in Columbia and Sumter, Greenville, Charleston, Orangeburg, Denmark, students themselves, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, are saying enough of Jim Crow, and they're demanding access uh, to lunch counters, access to schools of higher education. They're demanding the right to vote uh, without reprisals faced. And so they're joining a movement, as we discussed earlier, that had been in place for decades, that is magnified in the early 60s, is caught on camera, it's caught on television. It's caught in the newspapers. And so it demonstrates a level of, of restlessness among uh, African-American citizens. And the same is seen in, in Williamsburg as well. I mean, the, Dr. King comes to King Street at the request of people who have been fighting a long time for the struggle uh, for racial justice and the right to vote. Williamsburg County is a black majority county. And, Michael, you, were, you grew up in King Street. Yeah, I'm native to King Street. I, I did. Yes, sir. Let's have a first-hand account. You as a young person of color, what was what was the world like 
I now figured out how we now figured out how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give give the time period when you were growing up. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Kingsbury, which is the county seat of Williamsburg County. Um, my earliest recollection, I guess, uh, or memory, it does go back to Mother's Day, nineteen sixty-six. How okay. old were you in nineteen sixty-six? I was five. Uh, I remember vividly that Sunday afternoon um, going to to see him and to be a part of that, that gathering of folks. And I guess my greatest memory is, is sitting on my grandfather's shoulder, probably at the age of five, not understanding fully what was happening around me, but knowing that, that there was something that was unique, why on a Sunday afternoon in the rain we would go gather out at Thomaston's football field to see this guy, this person speak. Growing up in King Street, like many you know, Southern community, you know, Jim Crow was a part of the landscape. My earliest days, uh, kindergarten through fourth grade, I attended a segregated school, Anderson Primary School. So from that perspective, not knowing the wider world, that's all I knew was folks that looked like me that attended you know, the school that I attended. My father um, and my mother were very active in the civil rights movement. Uh, they were poll watchers poll managers, uh, they, they drove people to vote, uh, they encouraged people to vote. And so public engagement, civic life is a part of my DNA, uh, going back to my parents. When you read people's memoirs, particularly young black men growing up in the South, at a very early age you were taught to do things and not to do certain things? For your own safety? Yes. You, would you like to? Well, first of all, growing up, you know, in a segregated community, you know where you stood, you know where you lived, you know where you could go or should not be. And and, and so I think those are the my earliest memories. You know, a train station is a simple place to visit. But uh, when the train came, which was at 2 o'clock, actually, ironically, the north and southbound train came at the same time, 2 o'clock in King Street. If we went to pick someone up or to to just be there, there was a specific waiting room that I had to go in. It was always a smaller waiting room. In my earlier days, uh, there was a black hospital that existed in King Street. And so if you were to visit someone, um, you went to the black hospital. When I grew a little bit older, I think the hospital is still there now in King Street's closed because of the flooding last fall. Uh, there were two waiting rooms when I went to visit relatives that was in, quote, the bigger hospital. Uh, the one that I would wait in to visit my relatives would be a smaller place. So these are little things that I saw as I grew up. You know, a segregated school, different waiting rooms for the doctor, different waiting rooms for the uh, for the train station. And so just understanding that dynamic, you know, it's something that I try to share today with my own my kids. Right, where, where were places your parents that you mentioned there were places you shouldn't be and shouldn't go as a black child in King Street, where did your parents tell you you should not go or it was better for you not to go? Well, you know, ironically, the proverbial um, train track. Uh, there was a train track, a train tracks that actually you know, cut through the center of King Street. And on one side of that train track was, was predominantly African-Americans and on the outside was, was white. And, and so, except they were driving me to go targeted places, I only stayed on one side of the train track. And so I think, to be honest, the train track became my boundary. Okay. In terms of where I needed to go, where I shouldn't go, and also just making sure you were in the right place at the right time. Okay. Bobby, let's get into the, the Voting Rights Act and, and how it came about and what difference it made here in South Carolina. Well, one of the things to remember is this is May 8, 1966. This is now a year after the Selma movement and the passage of the Voting Rights Bill. And in South Carolina, there's a quick mobilization to say, now that these laws are in place, how do we then channel this toward electing African Americans in South Carolina, educating African Americans to vote, and then exercise the right to vote? And so Virgil Demery, who's a very active uh, leader in, in the King's Street area, uh, is one of the organizers of Dr. King's visit along with Billy Fleming, another unsung figure of the movement from Manning, a funeral home director uh, who knew King over the many years. And King had come to Manning only a few years before coming to King Street. He was there in 1962. But 
upon the passage of the civil of the voting rights bill, uh, these leaders are saying, who can we push forward to run for office and where? And there was a sense that if an African-American could be elected in South Carolina, it had to be in Williamsburg County, where you had an active organization. So King is in King Street as there is a, a campaign for Virgil Demery to run for the South Carolina Senate. Um, and King is there encouraging people to march on the ballot. There's a sense that although these laws are in place, there is still some reluctance. There is still some intimidation, the things that Mike, Mike just mentioned. That culture exists. So and King is there mobilizing people to say, despite all of that, here is an opportunity. And, and you need to remember at this time, the Senate districts were the counties. Yes. So you're just talking about the voters of Williamsburg County. Were African Americans a majority of the voters by 66? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But I think part of the challenge in Williamsburg County was just that. Given the obvious demographic map, how do you get people registered to vote and then convince them that it's okay to exercise your right to vote and exactly what do what is the result of getting individuals like Virgil Demery and others who are running in that county into elective office. And so when you hear King's speech, he's first reminding people of the long history. The speech, which we have only sort of a small snippet of it available, what is available is King reminding the audience that this state produced a Reconstruction government comprised of black people. And he goes down a list of ways South Carolina has been at the forefront of many movements uh, throughout the last century. And he then says, if it's happened before, it can happen again. And what I found sort of amazing, I'm intrigued by King's speech, and I'm very eager to know more about Mike's reaction, because for me, the snippet, what is most amazing, is that at multiple points, the camera shows the audience, and it shows their reaction. You, it shows them affirming, amening what King says. And so here is someone who's idolized, who is a hero, the movement, in this rural county, in that, in that state, in that field, uh, where people uh, are amazed. And when he comes into the audience, I mean, you can see it. Everyone is eager just to touch him because he's the embodiment of many hopes and dreams over the over generation. Now, you mentioned a snippet in the University Archive. There's a, it's a WIS tape. I, I believe it's WIS. Uh, so it's a, it's a collection called the Moving Image Resource Collection. And there are, are outtakes of newscasts uh, from the late 50s throughout the 60s. Uh, and this is just one of several notable civil rights pieces that are being uncovered nearly every day. We just recently found some footage from... Uh, February of, of 1961, when John Lewis, who is now a United States congressman from Atlanta, comes to Rock Hill uh, to support the Friendship Nine. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, it's, it's almost 20 seconds, and if you blink, you'll miss him. Uh, and, but it is John Lewis standing in front of the local jail in Rock Hill. It's interesting in, in this realization uh, where everybody just run, you know, you recycle everything that this, something like this still exists. Well, and I think the, the fact that the footage is there, all it does is it amplifies the memories of Mike and so many people. I remember being a part of this initiative over a decade ago called the Orphanage Film Series. And this MLK in King Street was part of that series. And at the time, we knew the date, but very little context of who organized it, who was there. And so I came in to kind of frame it. But I sat down. And there was a woman who was in the audience who said, I was there, in the audience where we were showing the film. She said, I was there. And she talked about her memories and how this film almost pressed a rewind button in her mind and gave her a visual of these memories that had been, you know, in, in the recess of her mind for decades. I was at a public event in King Street over the weekend, and I was sharing about the event and the pastor of, at, at the event that I was attending indicated to me, and I've known this guy all my life, and he indicated that he and his brother was there. He said, I was a senior at Thomason High School. My brother and I went there on that Sunday afternoon, and he said, my brother positioned himself when Dr. King came into the audience in order to shake his hand. He said, I was a little bit sheepish and timorous, 
by doing it. But he said, my brother did it. And he said, my brother, you know, my brother's passed on now. But every time you get my brother to talk about that experience, it was like the, the highlight of his life that he was able to do that. And, and uh, it amazed me as we've been planning for this event, more and more people are coming out and said, I was there. It's, it's, it's like an opportunity has been given to people to acknowledge that they were there. We need to pause to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Bobby Donaldson and Michael Allen about Martin Luther King's visit to Kings Tree, South Carolina, 50 years ago. Well, let's talk about the event, Michael Allen. I think as a part of a, a team, as a group of us that are working diligently in King Street in Williamsburg County to, to have the 50th commemoration of Dr. King's visit to King Street, I think is very special. Uh, a year ago, I found myself as a part of the commemoration from Selma to Montgomery, and which was moving to me. And the, the last day that we were there and we were you know, at the State House building in, in, in downtown Montgomery, it struck me that all of the efforts and planning that the National Park Service and the folks in Montgomery, Alabama, Selma did to commemorate this, a part of me said, well, you know, 50 years ago, I witnessed history in King Street. And so while I was there at State House Ground in Montgomery, I called some folks back at home in King Street, told them where I was, what I had done, and what was going on. And I said, next year, we need to do this. You know, history tells us that Dr. King spoke in very few places in South Carolina from a public civil rights perspective. King Street was one of those places, and we need to do this. And, and I, I think other folks probably had that same thought, and we just began to organize this past fall looking uh, at the date, Mother's Day, as it was historically, having the capacity to, to have this public event in the very same sp space that it was held 50 years ago, and I guess to begin putting together the process. Who do we invite? How do we recognize individuals? And, and most especially, what do we leave as a legacy of this event? You know, unfortunately, uh, many folks that probably grew up in King Street, Williamsburg County, that did not attend this event and may have gone through the public school system probably was not made aware that this event happened in King Street. And and so one of the things I also shared is that we need to leave some type of permanent marker. In my working with the Department of Archives and History, you know, the State Historic Marker Program is an excellent way to map our history. And so in addition to everything else we would do in that day, leaving and moving forward, people will know that on Mother's Day in 1966, Dr. King was at Thomason Athletic Field, and there will be a historic marker that would tell them. The date for the event is Mother's Day 2016, yeah. the 8th. But one of the things to remember, the, the point that Mike makes about Selma, I think it's important for listeners to remember the context. So that is spring of 1965 where African-Americans and white supporters are beaten uh, as there is an effort to register people to vote. It is that horrific uh, beating and violence that is witnessed across the country on television that galvanizes the movement, compels lead national leaders to push forward and to affirm what ultimately comes the voting rights bill uh, in the summer of 1965. And one of the powerful refrains that Dr. King offers on the steps of the state capitol in Alabama, where the governor only recently refused to allow black people to um, enroll at the University of Alabama, segregation forever, George Wallace said. Well, here is King who says, when will change come? When will freedom come? And he says, how long? Not long. And he does that refrain over and over again. Well, guess what? The people in Williamsburg, they hear it, and this is the mobilization. We don't have to wait forever for change to come. It can happen immediately. So within a year, you have the mobilization in Williamsburg County and all across South Carolina where people are saying this is the moment and this is the time. And so you have the Congress on Racial Equality, the NAACP, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, of, of which Dr. King was the president, saying let's have a mass rally in King Street. And Mike is among 5,000 people who are there, who witnessed this. And that's the people who could get in. 
the field was the athletic field at Thomason. Right, right, which is Black High School of the, King the, Street. The, the Black High School. Right. Which was still the Black High School. Yes. Okay. Bobby, in your comments earlier about the speech itself, you mentioned how Dr. King used South Carolina history. This wasn't just a standard. He made it very location-specific, which for anybody who's on a national stage, I, I find that not only interesting but incredible that he and somebody had done real research. Well, King, uh, before I came to the University of South Carolina, I worked in the Martin Luther King papers. And it is true, as most speakers, there was one speech he would use and use regularly. He modifies the speech here. And he's, he makes specific references to Reconstruction, to those leaders who were involved between 1865 uh, and 1877. Uh, and he calls for a second Reconstruction uh, in South Carolina and around the country. Uh, and so he does modify it, and it registers with the audience because some uh, are familiar uh, with that history, which was intentionally uh, overlooked or conveniently missing in most textbooks that they had in, in the public schools of South Carolina. Is there any chance that the original speech is in the King archives? Because you talk about you've seen the snippet, but is there a chance that the original? Well, well you know, in, in recent time, the University of South Carolina uh, has developed or is developing a new civil rights center where these kinds of inquiries are being pursued. And so since uh, we are aware of what was happening in King Street and the work of Mike and his group, people are trying to pull together. And we actually have more text of the speech that was not a part of what was shown on the broadcast. And that text is drawn from news coverage. And what was ironic, it's text drawn from newspaper coverage of those who were more or less in agreement with King, but the best coverage came from the editorials that were critical of King. And so if you look at some of the local newspapers, they quote directly from King and says, this is absurd. One of the quotes said that he is a professional racist in reverse, state newspaper. Another quote said, he is vindictive, he is hurting illiterate Negroes to the polls. And so the editorial response actually provides the historian, the reader, a window into what is actually missing uh, from the outtakes of the moving image footage. What's also exciting about the Civil Rights Center that's emerging is it's tapping into people's memories. I mean, people are now remembering the photograph book that had a photograph from that day, and we're seeing some of those emerge. Um, at the same time, it's compelling the university to now go back into these um, canisters of film. Some are marked, some are not marked, and to push forward to try to digitize, to get those available, and then to share with the public. Because all we see is footage. It, the, the residents of South Carolina are really the ones who can add the context, where this was, who those persons are. And so part of the footage that is available for King's visit to King Street shows who's on the stage. There's Billy Fleming, Matthew Perry, Frederick C. James, an AME minister who's still living at the age of 94, uh, and others, Andrew Young. Ten years ago, when, we, when this footage was first shown to me, I knew little of that. I knew little of who these people were. Um, I knew little about the young man whose name was Benjamin Mack, who's not known today. But Benjamin Mack was the counterpart of Septima Clark, who lived in Columbia. And he was an active member of the SCLC who traveled the country encouraging people to register to vote. And one of his important tactics he used was actually, and, and Mike would appreciate this, Mr. Mack said the first step to encourage African-Americans to vote is to teach Negro history and to devise your own curriculum. And so we actually have in the new Civil Rights Center uh, a lesson plan that Mr. Mack devised in the mid-60s on Reconstruction, where he's showing this is, these are the important components of Reconstruction that we should remember that underscore why voting has been a long-fought struggle in South Carolina and around the country. Let's talk a little bit about that Civil Rights Center. What's your involvement with that? Well, I'm helping with the implement implementation of it uh, presently. We're hoping to have a full-fledged center uh, beginning in the fall of 2016. This has been discussed for decades. Um, our great uh, colleague, Grace Jordan McFadden, mm -hmm. uh, was a pioneer in capturing many of the stories and personalities of the period. She talked to Billy Fleming. And she talked to, to some of the Delane family and the Briggs family. So fortunately, in the late 70s and early 80s, Dr. McFadden 
captured the oral histories of many of these people. And so we're now gathering and juxtaposing the oral histories with old newspapers, uh, moving footage, and the papers of individuals. Uh, just recently, Congressman James Clyburn, who was there in King Street that day in 1966, uh, has um, given his congressional papers to USC. Uh, and that's just one among many. Uh, a new set of collections has come in of Reverend J. Delane. Mm-hmm. We had a collection for about a decade. The family just added a new collection. Uh, there's a collection of the civil rights leader John Roy Harper uh, that has come in uh, as well. And so the center itself is serving as a portal for collections, but I think more importantly, a portal to tell more of the history and to share more of the history and to uncover more of the history. And that's why I'm really excited about what's happening in Williamsburg County, uh, because many of those counties, there was incredible work being done in the movement that the residents are surely aware of. And now it's a chance for historians, archivists to assist in preserving those histories. The work that Dr. McFadden did, and actually, it was actually video as well as audio, right. which, yes. which it was pioneering. Pioneering because uh, it's just like I like to have you two gentlemen in the studio when we record because reaction to questions and comments that tells a story in itself. A perfect example, Walter. Now, some of the some of your listeners uh, who 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 recall those days, they all, they may know the name John Henry McRae or the name. I did Quincy Newman. I didn't know them. I've read about them. But it's when you see them talking to McFadden, you understand how influential they were. But just by their, the pose of their bodies, the way they cocked their heads, the way they responded, the way they elevated their voice. And it just it demonstrated just the fact that Dr. McFadden was so pathbreaking in capturing this own film. It gives historians a different perspective. But as a teacher, we tell a whole different history. We teach it in a different way when our students can see it and hear it directly. Bobby, I want to get to Michael in a minute about contemporary Williamsburg County, but in terms of teaching, you talked about the newspapers and the negative reporting on this particular visit, but quite frequently civil rights activities were not reported at all. Well, when I first met Congressman Clyburn, and I think what ultimately uh, convinced him to place his papers at USC, was he was, as someone involved in the movement, was quite upset about the blackout, the intentional, deliberate effort um, to hope this just might go away if we ignore it. So if there was any reporting of a demonstration, it was a short paragraph on the back page of the C-section of the newspaper. And it's amazing, Walter, to talk to people who live through the movement, uh, particularly white residents, who were just surprised there were ever any sit-ins at the Woolworths in Columbia or in Sumter. And I kept saying, how could they sort of be so naive or blind? But the reality is, if your source of information is the state newspaper or the record or the Sumter item, and they don't cover it, how would you know? Of course, television made a big difference. Right. Uh, it, It certainly did. And I'm not certain if this outtake that we actually have from WIS was ever broadcast. Um, many, of that, many of those things were prepared for production, but you never saw them. Um, so I think what is occurring now as we revise these accounts of the Civil Rights Movement, sources that were uh, created at that moment that were buried are now being used for us to tell a new story. A perfect example is the Civil Rights Center also has some negatives of photographs. Some of these photographs were taken by photographers for the state newspaper. Uh, and we were, when we were working on the Columbia SC63 project, that was one of the first things we did. We visited the state newspaper to see what they might have in terms of their collection. And a current editor was pr- convinced there was very little. Um, and we said, well, let's take a look. And when we went to those negatives, it was eye-opening. There were, there were photographs from all across South Carolina about civil rights. There were lunch counter demonstrations in nearly every community around the state that were never published. There were photographs of Malcolm X in South Carolina in 1963 that were never published, but they were there. Um, And so now we're rushing in many respects to connect with people who were there because we have to remember if you were an adult in those early 60s, you're now in your 70s, a young adult. Uh, Well, that's why when 
Michael first called me about this program and said he was there, I think I said, I didn't think you were born. <laughs> there are good genes down in King Street, obviously. Uh, all right. Mike, when you go back to Williamsburg and King Street now to talk about this event, is it a surprise to a lot of people that this occurred? Too, too many it is. I go back to Saturday when I was there and I shared it in a public event. Other than the individual who was there you know, 50 years ago, the majority of the individual sitting in the audience was unaware that this had transpired. And I, I think that's part of the reason we're working so diligently and have worked diligently for May 8th, Mother's Day, to, to one, make residents of, of, of King Street and of Williamsburg, the PD and the entire state, that we want them to be there. I guess, in a way, I'm a little bit surprised because when Dr. King in the, in the talk mentioned Reconstruction, the community understood their history. And now you're saying the modern generation doesn't understand its history. Well, I think it, it goes back to what Bobby said about how history is taught. You know, again, another snippet of, of the history of Williamsburg County and King Street. I became an adult before I knew that Stephen Swales was the mayor of King Street, the president pro tem of the Senate of South Carolina, or Robert Small's lawyer. And that he was I, an African-American. Yes. Right. He fought with the 54th. I became an, I was an adult. Now, there's a historic marker that tells folks driving on Main Street that that's a reality. But, you know, I think the, the key here is education. Mm-hmm. Dr. King used the tool of education and the familiarity of, of figures and facts and, and, and transitional points in our American experience to say why King Street in Williamsburg County was so important. I can assure you he knew that Stephen Swales was the mayor of King Street. And, and so I think a, a part of our challenge today is how do we open up this window of history that's ever-changing, ever-present, that happened where you live, and able to have a connectivity between that time and where you are now today. Well, there's more than just education, though. There's community memory. Mm-hmm. And I would have thought that, I mean, this was a big deal, that the community memory would have, I mean, that's, that's my surprise. Well, I'll say this to you. When I share this with people and people acknowledge that they were there, then their next statement is, but we have not been given a reason to remember it. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's no, p- to my knowledge, May 8th, Mother's Day, will be the first public commemoration of this event ever happening. Well, Walter, I should say, as someone who does a lot of oral history, and it's things that I should know better, uh, having grown up with uh, older grandparents and great-grandparents in, in Aiken. So I come in with my set of questions, and I say, so tell me what it was like on May 8th, 1966. And they'll say, Dr. Donaldson, that was a long time ago. You're, you're stirring up things I haven't thought about in 50 years. And so part of it, there's this haze that comes with aging and and memory. And there's this other thing that I've discovered, um, and I'm not sure where it comes from. Many people who were there, many people who were involved in organizing sit-ins and demonstrations, they're surprised that we're interested. They're surprised that it actually is significant or that it does matter. I mean, several people I've talked to who are from SC State or Claflin or Benedict who had no idea that their movements became major legal battles, major Supreme Court rulings. So what has been surprising and quite rewarding is helping people uncover their memories and to underscore how important it is. I'm not sure if people in King Street in 66 fully understood that they were a test case, that there was an effort to see if we could mobilize black people in this concentrated area, that that might set the course. And what they don't know is that it did. So that is 1966. Mm-hmm. Virgil Demery lost by a slight margin. And they were convinced that there, were, there was some finagling of the ballots that caused Demery to lose. Oh, surprise in South Carolina. But however, <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what happened in 1970? In 1970, the very same people who were trying to get black elected officials in 66 have three victories, and, almost a fourth, yeah. with Jim Clyburn in, in Charleston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Charleston and Columbia. Right. That was a part of the same effort. Um, but that I mean one could easily trace a major push to Williamsburg in 1966. 
And I think that's the context that, you know, I try to share with, with, with younger folks that the history of our community has been significant as a movement, as a part of our state and our nation. And, and when we can make that connectivity, then it, it, it helps you understand your place, your position, and your citizenship. I, I also think, too, so, when, so for someone like Mike, who is five years old, and then to say, what does it mean to be a young African-American person, a young African-American male in the 50s and 60s, and the real restrictions? I think, regrettably, many people today, younger people, have no sense of the struggle, the restrictions, the difficulty, and why this event does matter. When Dr. King concludes his speech, he, does, he goes back to a refrain that he uses all the time. He says, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. And the crowd erupts. I mean, it's spontaneous um, uh, excitement because that is a familiar line and they know what that means. Well, today, the younger generation, people we work with and people we teach, I don't necessarily sense that mobilization. And, you know, there are things happening now, most notably Black Lives Matter, that give a sense that there is some consciousness that things are not well and that you can be a change agent. Because one of the things I always underscore is, although you had King and major leaders like uh, Ida Clinton Newman and John McRae, a real catalyst were young people. Mm-hmm. If you look at that audience in King Street, you're struck by people who are in their Sunday best. But some of the most exciting responses when you see the camera turn back are from young people. Mm-hmm. There's one young lady who I wish I knew she was. You know, we may discover her. But he says one line, the camera hits her face, and she is out of her seat, and she can't be more than 10 years old. At the event, is this film going to be available so that people there can see? So. Yeah. It's starting exactly at 3.30 p.m. Um, on May 8th, Mother's Day. Uh, we have an assortment of activities that leading up to it. From an educational perspective, we're working with the local school district in which they actually will have an essay contest about King's connectivity to, the, to King Street. Um, Congressman Cliven will be there as one of our, our principal speakers. Bakari Sellers also will be there as one of our principal speakers. And we have a number of individuals from around the county will be there as well. It's a way, I think, of, of renewal, of, of, of awakening, but having a place in understanding history. Well, I was just wondering, though, is this footage going to be shown so that if, if you show it locally that somebody might identify that young woman? And is, that going to be part, is that going to be part of what's going on? We are working with a company that will be showing the video. Okay. We've been actively engaging the community, asking individuals who were there to come, and we're going to recognize them. They will have a little pen that says, I was there. And so we're finding ways to connect to those who were there 50 years ago, but also encouraging those who were not there as we move forward that this is a, a very sacred space, a very important place. And, and Walter, the, the footage itself is now widely available. The Moving yeah. Image Resource Collection has it on uh, their website. The New Civil Rights Center has it as well, along with dozens of other pieces of footage from the 1960s. Okay. All right. Well, gentlemen, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words, Michael? To learn more about the event and, and, and the public gathering, uh, we encourage you to check out March on Ballot Box. That's, that's our Facebook page, and that's our website. It will highlight and chronicle all of the activities that we'll be doing on that day and what will happen beyond that day. It will be in the exact space, exact location as it was 50 years ago. And, and as I said, you know, I think that's unique that we're there in that historic space. Okay. Bobby? Well, I just want to commend Mike Allen for a lot of work that he's done over the years, especially this project. I think one of the, 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 the lessons learned uh, as a professor, professional historian is how little we, we know and how there is, there's much more for us to uncover and to document. And what is happening in Williamsburg is just one of many examples of that there's much more work for us to do to preserve and document the, the struggles for civil rights uh, in South Carolina. Okay. Well, Michael Allen and Bobby Donaldson, I want to thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was a very interesting conversation about what folks remembered, what was recorded, and what was not. Little did the 5,000 folks know who gathered in King Street, South Carolina, that they were going to be a part of a movement that within five years would see African Americans serving in the State House of South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guest will be Dr. Larry Rowland, and we'll have a conversation on South Carolina as a colonial melting pot. There's a whole century of history centered around the coast of South Carolina that most people don't know about, the lost century of American history. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of South Carolina Public Radio, Friday at noon. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.